time once again for Community Forum. And we're very lucky to have back with us live here in the studios this morning, Reverend Bill Curlin Hackett. Reverend Bill Curlin Hackett is the director of the Interfaith Task Force on Homelessness. And we're going to be talking about homelessness here in Seattle and King County this morning. Bill, thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us again this morning. Thanks for the invitation. Good to be with you. So start out, for those that are not familiar, what is the Interfaith Task Force on Homelessness? We started in 2001 under the direction of uh, Reverend David Bloom, my predecessor, and there was an event at St. Mark's Cathedral uh, that uh, Dean Taylor started, who was the staff there at the time, because of Tensity 3 being hosted on site. And he asked, what are we doing around homelessness? So 350 people came, and what they did was, the first thing they did was form our task force, and the second thing they did was say, let's have a conversation about a plan. And they started the conversation around the 10-year plan, uh, both out of the same event. So we've been working since 2001 on education advocacy and uh, since maybe the last eight or nine years on direct service. And a good share of the direct service we've done has been around people living in vehicles. So we are uh, uh, low profile low organizational style, uh, fluid and dynamic and respond quickly and try to help people partner. So that's in a nutshell what we do. And sometimes we cause trouble and sometimes we, you know, work with people to uh, create new, new ways of thinking. And I, I, I'll talk a little bit about boxes later because uh, people are stuck in boxes in this system. So so um, speaking of causing a little trouble, um, September of 2015, uh, just a little over a year ago, you had uh, publicly started challenging Mayor Ed Murray on um, declaring a state of emergency for the homeless. And uh, just a, m- a month or so after that began, he did exactly that. Um, so I was hoping you could, uh, and you were on the show just briefly after that, and mm-hmm. so I was hoping you can kind of give us an update. Where uh, are we since that state of emergency has been declared? Sure. I was not the only one who was frustrated with the lack of cohesive responses and recognizing what we thought was an emergency. So I took to Facebook and uh, found out that if I put Mayor Ed Murray in, it would be on his timeline. And I started a series of 12, I guess I call them exhortations or epistles, messages to him aimed at uh, the emergency and uh, encouraging that he recognize it one way or another. I truly can't recall if I used the word state of emergency. I must have. I have the text at home. I should reread it. But nevertheless, uh, in early November, which was several weeks after I stopped, he and uh, Executive Constantine did declare states of emergency, um, which a lot of us in the community hearkened as a a step forward. We thought it would break down barriers. Um, It would uh, get us into uh, a way of thinking that we hadn't been using and, and I actually brought some show and tell, uh, which won't work for the radio, but uh, Mike does record this, so maybe it'll show up somewhere. But it started with how we all think in the box, and that's how our systems usually work. And we try to keep to the confines of the box with our outcomes and our nonprofits and our providers and our spending. Um, then we say we have to be outside the box, and so there's the homeless person outside the box, but the box still exists. And we make more focus on the box than we do the people still. So I heard Thomas Friedman recently, and he said we have to throw away the box. (laughs) So that means for me, when you declare a state of emergency, you stop worrying about the boxes and you focus on the people, just the people. And the boxes become ancillary or helpful to the people. 
Instead, we're still stuck in the box. Uh, we're systemic people. Um, we want to support the systems that we've had. And so we end up with what, lots of siloed behavior, lack of partnership. In fact, when Focus Strategies came and did the report for All Home, adjacent to the Barbara Poppy report for the city, their main point was <clears throat> we've got multiple systems operating instead of one system. And everybody shook their head and said, yeah, that doesn't work. And she said, yeah, but that's you. That's how you're doing it. So we're trying to work our way out of that, but it's uh, entrenched behavior. It's like uh, Sam Keen, uh, a favorite uh, mentor, said, uh, the sign on the muddy road says, choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it the next 10 miles. We love the ruts we've been in. So the only way out of these ruts is to do away with the box. You know, maybe in that case, it would be do away with the road. Uh, I don't know how that works. But the main thing I know is that when we focus more on the people and look at it from the bottom up, and systems always look at it from the top down, uh, when we look at it from the bottom up, we, we begin to see what's needed. And there's too little of that right now. We're not really looking at it through the eyes of the people going through this. Uh, we don't tend to listen to them. We still call them consumers. If we call them consumers, does that make us sellers? <laughs> or what does that make us? Uh, I, I still can't get that word changed. We still call the homeless who are in the system consumers. So if you try to follow that capitalist model someplace, it takes you to oblivion. Um, and, and it takes you to confusion. And it takes you to boxes. Uh, so we're still trying to shake that way of thinking even. Uh, that's why it's good that we're not in a box getting public money and, and kind of stuck doing reports and outcomes and projected outcomes. Sometimes these are needed, but we will not end homelessness that way, and we're proving it. So whatever you ask me, I, I got that far. <laughs> so that that's seems to be a common critique of the city's response on doing its its two studies that it did that it just it didn't even incorporate in talking to any of the people who are actually out there living on the streets well they interviewed people and i think focus probably did a better job of that barbara poppy um, might have interviewed people but at the same time she came at this with more of a framework that she wanted to apply she actually quoted the focus strategies enormously in her report. Um, so it's not that they didn't tell us anything that we don't know or can't use, but we've already turned away from some of the things that Poppy was recommending, which tended to take us away from housing tonight, which is the word we've coined for how do you get people into a safe place tonight? That's the first step out of homelessness is to get out of harm, harm reduction, harm alleviation. Um, she wanted us to really just try to get people straight into housing, housing first, which would be marvelous if we had a housing stock that we could put people into, but we don't. Um, and, and so the, you need interim ways of doing that. We called them interim survival mechanisms in the 10-year plan. And those are everything from tent cities to small houses to shelters in congregations to safe parking, uh, all kinds of other remedies that take people out of the harm that they face every day and begin to give them a chance to use their energy toward their own capacity to be out of homelessness. And we know most people have that. Some have recovery needs, um, and so we need a pathway for them that's different, and they need to be walked through that because you don't do this alone, especially recovery. But even those who have capacity need people with them to exit homelessness. We've learned that the hard way. And we still think that you can just give a key to somebody and walk away and they'll be fine in an apartment. It, it doesn't work. Um, even Sam Sumbaris from Pathways 
to uh, housing back in New York when they started housing first, they, they realized that you need, they're losing their old community when they get that key, you know, and sometimes uh, that old community drags them back in and away from their stability. So we know that um, a lot of what we know we're, we're not incorporating because we keep using that same rut or those same system tools or the same organizations that maybe aren't changing fast enough. And they're still valuable organizations, but they're not the ones that we should be making the pioneers because we're, we're not thinking without the box, you see. So we just keep, you know, Seattle puts, what, $58 million in, we hear. And the consultant said, wow, you, you should not be having this problem with that much money. And that's only part of the money. We get HUD money, too, you know, some $25, 30000000 million. Could be more than that now. Don't, don't quote me, anybody. But... Um, Nevertheless, that, that's a lot of funding, and we're not seeing the results that we ought to be seeing, and we're seeing too many people who still turn back from pathways, they, too many people still having to wait. Um, even the coordinated entry, I've described it kind of like a hovercraft, because the system, again, built out from the top, it comes down to the ground, and it hovers over the ground, it spreads out like an umbrella, spreads over the ground, but it never reaches the ground for everybody, because you have to go somewhere to be assessed, and you have to go somewhere to be referred. And they're trying to get outreach workers. That's why, especially with vehicles, we're talking about this. Um, people in vehicles are not going to go to a regional access point and get assessed so they can be put into the homeless management information system and wait for housing. P people whose urgency every day is food, safety, shelter, are, are not going to go, oh, look it, I have my calendar up in my car, and it says in four weeks I'll have an interview. I mean, come on, that, that's, that's how we live in our houses. You know, we mark the calendar in the kitchen wall, but that's not how folks on the street live. So that's what I mean. We, we don't have um, a frame of mind that actually incorporates into what we're trying to do, that what people are going through. And so a lot of that's around harm reduction too. I mean, we, that's why the vehicle thing is so important for us. Every day we have the same rules in place and the very good Public safety officers are out there just enforcing the rules we gave them. So I can't even fault them. I mean, every now and then there's a few who maybe behave a little oddly and have a bad day and give out a ticket they shouldn't have given out. But for the most part, we've given them the wrong tools to do the job. So, so talk more about that. You um, do a lot of, of your focus specifically on people living in vehicles. Give us, paint us a picture. How many people... Um, are out living in a vehicle on any given night? So uh, this year, the annual count, the point in time count was different. So we won't have those numbers until May, but it's always been about a third of the total number we count. So last year, that number was in the around 17, 18, 1900. I don't have those figures in front of me, but we know that out of the 4,500, it was about a third of those unsheltered. And the problem we continue to have is that we've got, in, I'll just talk for King County, we've got 39 cities with 39 different ways that they respond to people living in vehicles. And in Seattle, we've done some reports where it shows, and you may not be able to see this, but we've got no parking 2 to 5 a.m. signs up in many places around the city. Um, I think that's a better map that shows where, how many we've got. And the only reason those are there is to keep people who would put their vehicle there overnight from sleeping in it. It's not about storage of vehicles, although it could be a little bit including that, but mainly it's not about that. And then the other thing that we've got going because of that is we've got people who don't have current tabs, and it's hard to have current tabs when you're living in a vehicle because you don't have the money. But the, the leading cause, this is from the court, the leading cause of harm to people living in vehicles with tickets 
is tabs, and it's the gateway to everything else. You can't renew your license. You can't uh, put title down, um, and then they can give you one every day. In fact, one guy called me this week, and he had been down to the court because he tried to renew his tabs, and the licensing office said, oh, you've got tickets. You have to go take care of those. So he went down to the court, the people we're working with, and they've been really great to work with, by the way, um, because they were part of a protocol that came up under Mayor McGinn to work with us. And so this is the scofflaw mitigation program that I do with Jane Darcy. Um, so he went down to the court. They said, you don't have any tickets. They should be giving you your tabs, you know, and he was going to pay for them and stuff. So uh, he went back and they still wouldn't give it to him. But in the time it took him to do that, he got two tickets within one minute of each other for not having current tabs. So in other words, two parking enforcement or patrol, probably parking enforcement, people came by and said his tabs aren't current, put, in a, put more tickets on. So I told him you have to actually go back to the court and maybe the court can actually send the licensing office once he takes care of those other two, some kind of, you know, information that you're clear of tickets. But the problem is he could have tickets in another jurisdiction, um, meaning out of state or some other place that he hasn't known about and that now that he's trying to renew the tabs or interfering. So that's how convoluted this is for a person living in their vehicle. He, he may not be able to renew his tabs without going to another state or who knows. Someone, so that's the licensing office. They, that's where you have to go and you wait two or three hours to talk to someone at the, and find out what's blocking me from, they're the only ones who know that. So I talk about silos. This is a messy siloed system for people living in vehicles just to stay safe. And the only way he could get out of that is if he parked off the street at a faith community or somewhere like that. So otherwise, every time he's on the street, he's subject to more tickets because his tabs aren't current. And the only thing that we've worked out with, with uh, the city, parking enforcement and the court is that when we're doing outreach and we get emails from them when they find a candidate for scofflaw, which is four or more tickets, they send us an email about doing outreach. We go out. While we're doing that, in this electronic system they have, harm is suspended. In other words, they shouldn't get any more tickets or be responsible for any more while we're doing outreach which I'll do with this guy. I'll say, hey, we're trying to conduct outreach with him and you're still giving them tickets. Uh, so they may tear those up. We'll see. But the point is the system is still so messed up that if he's got out-of-state tickets or something else, we can't fix it. And that's what I'm talking about, the kind of harm that keeps happening to people. Um, I've got dozens of stories about different ways that people get harmed through the laws. And scofflaw law had no provision in it in Seattle for the indigent people living in vehicles. We've tried since 2011 when they passed it to get the ordinance changed. Council has, oh, this is perfect. I have a children's toy here. Council has been on the stump. You know, they get elected. Uh, they run for office. They've got big issues. They're really good with some, like immigration right now. You know, I, I love some of this stuff that they're on the stump about. But the problem is when it comes to vehicle residency, and this includes all the mayors and all the councils in the whole county, that's what the stump looks like. We can't find them. They aren't passing policies to help. They aren't doing anything to bridge the gap. And the, the name of the interim homeless response from the mayor is bridging the gap. They're not doing anything to bridge the gap. So we've met with the director of homelessness, George Scarola, that the mayor appointed. And George is really listening well. And he's truly bothered by this lack of response around vehicles. So we don't know where it's going yet. I'm, he's been involved in these other interim things the city's doing, the three new encampments, the navigation center, 
Um, these in themselves are good things. They're still not anywhere near enough. They're uh, like little episodic transactional efforts. They're like putting Band-Aids on a wound when your whole leg is on fire. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, it helps a little, but it's not going to... But so when, when George heard about the reality of what's going on with vehicles and there's no policy, he wants to be part of that. But we don't hear anything else from the city. I mean, they talk about a study group, a work group. The council doesn't want to change the law. As long as the law works against the poor, and this is across the board on all issues, but as long as the law works against the poor, it will still harm the poor. You know, and that's what we're battling. In some cases, we're like fingers in the dike all over the place. At the same time, we're trying to walk with them to court and, and help the court behave well, which it has done. You know, I praise the Seattle Municipal Court. They've done great jobs. And for the most part, parking enforcement has done a great job with this. But we're, we're bridging a gap between those responses in the city where the city isn't owning up to what it should be doing between the gaps. You know, we're doing it for no pay from the city. And even George Scarola understands that. And the mayor won't meet with it. I, I don't think he has an, an idea about a policy around this. He's never talked to us about it. We can't seem to get a meeting with the mayor to talk about it. But this is also true in every other city in King County. So we're taking it to the state, you know, in a way uh, for maybe legislation next session around tabs, but having them be complementary. And there's ways to do that because the revised Code of Washington allows indigency to have uh, responses that help remove the harm from their indigency. And tabs is, is the biggest one. And this would include even low-income housing housed persons who can't get their tabs current and need to go to medical appointments or other things like that. So we've got groups like Disability Rights Washington and others kind of signing on. to. So we're going after the, the number one harm uh, vehicle, <laughs> to use a bad pun, uh, that's being used to uh, keep people, and it keeps people in poverty. And it keeps them um, always moving around every 72 hours or in Bellevue every 24 hours. I mean, I think they're the best managers in the world to stay out of harm's way. We probably should hire them uh, because that's how, you know, the ones that we don't hear about are the ones who've managed to follow all these rules and stay out of chaos all the while still trying to survive. So, I mean, the more we talk about or get in contact with people going through these stories, um, Three weeks ago, we had a family of nine living in an explorer, and the explorer got towed. You know, and, and then we were, it was right around the same time as the Count Us In. And through a combination of uh, neighbor care in Columbia City, Mary's Place, thanks to colleague Joe Martin at Pike Place, um, ABC Towing in Tukwila released that car. You know, <laughs> that's never happened. Um, so... Just because we did some legwork, that family has stabilized. But a family of nine living in an explorer, you know, and that's the kind of craziness we're seeing. And it makes me sometimes want to go down and not just protest, but, you know, just start knocking things down somewhere because it's that hard to bear, the, the, the suffering we're seeing. And that's why I struggle, you know, when the politicians are still inside the stump <laughs> hiding, um, and they go out and they have a big fanfare about how they're looking at something. And then they come back and they don't do anything. I mean, I was at the opening of the housing Ronald Commons yesterday, 60 new units in Shoreline for, for $20 million. So I figured that's over $300,000 a unit for 60 units. And I thought, okay, this is a nice way to try to end homelessness. 
and I really and I really do appreciate the fact that this is going to be a beautiful place for these folks and the food banks in the bottom and I appreciated all that but that is not the way to end homelessness because we can't keep doing it that way we don't have we're not going to dedicate 30 million or 20 million dollars per project or more I've heard variations of 250 million a unit to 500 million a, or yeah 500 million a unit for what happened at Sandpoint so I mean we just can't end homelessness that way so we need these true interim mechanisms whether they're more tent cities safe parking sites and and then engagement at each level to help people start to exit you know here's the pathway we'll walk with you we're just not doing that well right now and um it's very frustrating well it seems um in the newspapers both locally and nationally um the tiny houses concept is is being touted as a reasonable um, stepping stone for a lot of things, and but vehicles seem like you know well they're kind of tiny houses. I mean not not as yeah, nice obviously really tiny know, yeah super <laughs> tiny and obviously you can't sleep in normally in in most of them. However, they already do exist, so why wouldn't the city you know ease up on on that issue itself? Well, and, and didn't the city... Um, they did try. They had RVs. They had them? three interim sites. One was a more formal site, and two were just safe spots off the street, but they were all interim. Um, the only one that in any form still survives is down in Soto near the bridge, Spokane Bridge. Um, and it, it's a, I'd say, a disaster for the people there. It's just not near anything. It's not a pleasant place to be. Um, and they sort of gave it up. Um, Yankee Diner, they uh, cite, they, they overspent on things they should never have spent money on, and then the project had a time limit because the land was only available for nine months or so. So it, it's like the bridging, bridging the gap is let's try bad interim solutions gap plan. Um, and the mayor has said he's at one point, when I think it may have been more around the jungle that we're making this a lot of this up as we go along. The problem with that is he's really not taking advice from people who work with people on the streets. He's taking advice from people who sit in the seventh floor or sixth floor or fifth floor in City Hall, many of whom never have worked with folks on the streets, who are maybe thinking politically about his reelection some of whom are thinking about his image, some of whom maybe just don't want to lose the job for bringing up an idea that may offend him. Uh, all the various things that are going on, some who have ideas they're afraid to say, um, whatever it is, I always come back to, and it's, I know we're getting near the end here, I always come back, this is a leadership issue. It's a leadership issue. And we're not being led well anywhere, really, um, in King County. I also work in Snohomish County, and we just, I'm a part of the Homeless Policy Task Force up there, and we just met with their continuum of care group called the Partnership to End Homelessness. And what we said to them is they're the ones responsible for the spending of the money and the big ideas, and the Homeless Policy Task Force is the long-term group that used to do that. Um, we said, we are not working together. There's a gap between us that we need to close because people in this county don't even know there's a Partnership to End Homelessness. And it's not different than it is here. I showed them materials from All Home, and we have impressive materials through All Home Strategic Plan. You know, allhomekc.org, go look at them. Um, but a lot of people I meet out in King County don't know we have a strategic plan even. You know, that we're all trying to partner, that the average citizen is valuable in this, that every organization, faith community is valuable to this, that you can all begin to do something around this. 
We're struggling with that because, again, it's that same hovercraft mentality. It hasn't reached not only the homeless on the ground, it hasn't reached enough of the citizens on the ground who can create assets. We're meeting with some folks who were connected uh, to us from uh, kind of a group that isn't always favored of the uh, liberals, Smart Growth Seattle, which is kind of developers. And what, what they're putting us together with are people who are building small houses, have other options for small houses that actually collapse and don't have to be carted away on a flatbed. We had a small house group two or three years ago. We're starting another one with new ideas that are where there's no box. You know, how can we actually make some of this happen uh, faster? And small houses, you know, some, some of the more sophisticated ones will cost more than $2,200 that the volunteer ones that they're putting together now are, but that's still less than $300,000 a unit, you know, and some of them, you know, the ones I've seen last five or 10 years, if people begin to stabilize from survival needs, they can begin to get a job, get income, move up their own ladder of stability into a place they might afford. It might not be in Seattle, but somewhere. But right now we are not at that level below the hovering system we're not helping people take those first steps. And that's just, it's as simple as that. It sounds crazy to believe that it's that simple, but it is that simple. We're not helping the people on the ground from their point of view. So just uh, about four minutes left. So yeah, $58 million seems like we should be able to solve the problem. $58 million per year seems like we should be able to solve this problem. Um, so if, again, if you were put in charge... <laughs> If Murray just put you in charge and cut you loose, that would be a cold day in hell. Yeah, <laughs> said by this strange, said by this clergy person, happened. right? No, not that strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I think it's um, a matter of first first looking at things regionally. Even in Seattle, we work regionally. We've we've got U District, Ballard, uh, West Seattle groups going, and there's others. Um, in King County, we've got the East Side Homeless Advisory. They're starting another one on the North End, South County. Um, we're starting an all-home vehicle residency work group, and our main goal is to do the same thing, to work regionally, find regional solutions, um, but solutions that begin with what's going on for the people there, not what are the assets we can bring to this, and then let's just spread them over it. You know, that, that's the opposite of putting a seed in the ground and letting it grow from the bottom up. This is like kind of creating something from the top, and I'm not sure what the garden illusion would be there, but... But that's how we continue to think. What resources can we bring to bear on this? Instead of realizing, well, let's look at what the people need and then develop those pathways for them into those resources. We don't do it that way, you know? And, and so more outreach is needed, more listening to people who are consumers. That It's an ugly word. Um, more partnering uh, among those who can help them, more walking with them. The Craig Rennebaum model that Kay Eaton now does out of the Seattle Mental Health Chaplaincy of accompaniment, companionship, almost like a mentor. You know, if you're the homeless person, I, I stick with you. I walk with you till you're stabilizing. You know, maybe we stay in touch and we become friends down the road or we don't. But we don't have that, this system working like that. And we've got plenty of people out there willing to help at some level who don't know how to help because the hovercraft is not reaching them either. I mean, in my faith community, same thing. There have been 60 people or more trained in companionship who hardly are being used anywhere right now because they don't know where to plug in so I, I just think, you know, if, if I was going to talk to the mayor, I'd just say sit on your head or do something to see that you've got it. Three-letter word backwards. 
We're talking with the Reverend Bill Curlin Hackett with the uh, Interface Task Force on Homelessness. How can people find out more about your organization and the work you do? Well, we have a web page that I don't keep very current. It's itfomelesss.org, but they can uh, email me straight, itfh at comcast.net. They can call me. I mean, everybody on the street has my number. It's on the flyers parking enforcement gives out, 425-442-5418. We are hosted out of St. Luke's Lutheran in Bellevue at 3030 Bellevue Way, um, Bellevue 98004. Um, So that's how we're able to do this. Um, We always need funds. We always need more people interested in coming to our meetings, which currently are the second Wednesday of the month, noon to 1.30 at... University Congregational at 45th and 16th. People are always welcome. We don't have members. We have activists, people who want to do things. So help. (laughs) We need help is what we need. And not just our task force, the system. We need help. All right. Well, with that, we are unfortunately out of time. I want to thank you for coming and spending time with us again this morning. I hope people will watch the video so they can see the puppet. Okay, we'll be, we'll be <laughs> posting that online. So, all right. Thanks again. Time once again for Community Forum, and we're very lucky to have back with us live in the studios this morning, Tom Carpenter. Tom Carpenter is executive director at the Hanford Challenge. Prior to his current position, he was the director of the Nuclear Oversight Campaign for the Government Accountability Project. He also helped establish and is a board member of the Hanford Concerns Council and its predecessor, the Hanford Joint Council, and was a former member of the Hanford Advisory Board. Tom, thank you very much for coming back in and spending time with us again this morning. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. So start out, uh, tell us, uh, for those that are unfamiliar, what is the Hanford Challenge? Well, the Hanford Challenge is a uh, nonprofit organization. Uh, Our mission is uh, to oversee <clears throat> the cleanup at the uh, nation's most contaminated nuclear facility uh, called the Hanford Site, which is uh, located here in Washington State, uh, eastern part of the state. Uh, and it was built uh, in World War II to make uh, plutonium used in our nuclear arsenal. Uh, and so that, that mission is over. They're not making plutonium anymore, but the, the hangover, if you will, from making that plutonium is this very large... Uh, area of of contamination where uh, they have tanks of nuclear waste uh, that are sitting there needing remediation. There's a lot of contaminated groundwater. Um, it, it's really, <clears throat> it's just, if you talk about a Superfund site, this is like the granddaddy of Superfund sites. Uh, and it's going to take decades to uh, to clean this up, maybe, maybe longer. And it's costing the taxpayer about $2 billion dollars a year and will for the next several decades uh, in order to get a handle on containing that nuclear mess. So our job is to help nuclear whistleblowers there um, to uh, inform the public, educate the public about what's happening, to work with Congress, uh, to on occasion bring lawsuits uh, on environmental matters or to protect workers. And so that's, that's our mission. All right, so we last talked to you in February of this year, and um, since then there have been numerous developments uh, out at the Hanford Reservation. Um, One of the issues that you have been at the forefront of regarding Hanford is uh, injured tank farm workers. Um, Can you talk about that? Well, sure. 
you know, in any industry, uh, the workers are the front line of the people who are going to get exposed. And uh, it's, it's true at the Hanford site. Um, so at Hanford, there are these very large inventories of nuclear waste um, in these underground tanks. And each tank is a million gallons, uh, up to a million gallons. And uh, it's, it's, it's radioactive material mixed with chemicals. And it's very reactive. It's very dynamic. And so they, uh, they burp uh, gases and vapors. Uh, workers on top of the ground that are doing work to transfer waste or to simply take the temperature of the tank and that kind of thing uh, often inhale these vapors. And over the years, uh, many people have become exposed uh, and made sick and ill from uh, these exposures. So uh, in 2014, uh, after you know a, a good 12 years of study, it, a new round of exposures happened, and at that point, uh, a lot of a lot of the observers, like Hanford Challenge, uh, one you know unions at the site, uh, and even the Attorney General's office uh, for the state of Washington, uh, decided that this time there, there needed to be a permanent and lasting fix to the. Uh, the vapor exposures because Hanford simply was not doing what was necessary to protect these workers. So uh, uh, after some 70 or so workers, 80 workers got exposed in 2014, um, we filed, uh, and by we, I mean Hanford Challenge, uh, the Pipe Fitters Union out there, Local 598, and the Washington Attorney, Attorney General's Office uh, filed a uh, notice of intent uh, to... Uh, file a lawsuit, which gave them three months uh, to get their act together. Um, a report came out that that uh, said all the things that were wrong there and how they weren't protecting workers and how they were doing everything wrong. Unfortunately, this was like the 20th such report. So, you know, we weren't uh, at all secure in the knowledge that they would go forth and implement the recommendations. So that's why we filed the notice. Um, and... Uh, we gave them almost a year uh, to start implementing these recommendations. And in that time frame, a whole bunch of more people got exposed. So we did file a lawsuit in September of 2015. And since that time, um, there have been more exposures. But at, uh, this past summer, there were most of those exposures happened in April and May and June uh, when they conducted a transfer. So uh, at that point... Um, we filed a motion for a preliminary injunction uh, saying we want the relief now, we want the protections now, uh, and that was in July. Uh, and the response to that from the, the company uh, and the DOE was to put all the workers finally on supplied air respiratory protection. Uh, and the exposures have largely gone away since then. Uh, and the unions also uh, issued a stop work. Uh, so since that time... Uh, people have been pretty protected. Uh, so I think, you know, we're maybe hoping to wind down this lawsuit. Uh, we'll we'll uh, sustain it as long as we need to because we don't have permanent protections yet. They're not nailed down, so we need an enforceable agreement. So that's kind of where things are. Uh, the exposures have largely gone away because of the use of supplied air, which is what we've always been uh, pushing for. But in the end, there there needs to be an engineer control where these vapors don't enter the, the breathing air environment of the workers 
at all, right? They filter these vapors or they blow them away from where the workers are, are working, uh, one or the other. But um, uh, right now, their only choice is uh, respiratory protection for supplied air. It's very dangerous stuff. It appears the resistance from DOE and its contractors to having supplied air as a regular feature for the workers is that it slows down the whole process. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what they say. Um, you, and it doesn't it doesn't really add up. Uh, they've done some self-serving studies on it, but uh, what, what they don't do is make it easier to use the supplied air. So, for instance... Uh, they're making workers out there carry these 35-pound tanks on the on their backs, and you do that for a couple hours, and you know you got to take a break, um, and it's hot and everything else. Well, you know, duh, modern science has come up with something called an airline, where you have a tank and all you're carrying around is a line, kind of like a scuba diver, uh, and they used to do that at Hanford, but the companies refused to implement that. Um, so, uh, you know, that's NIOSH, uh, which is the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, just came in six weeks ago and say, why aren't you doing this? Well, this has been said for, for years. Uh, they just are very intransigent to change. They're in denial about the health effects of these, these vapors, despite all the people who have been seriously ill um, and permanently ill uh, from exposure. Uh, management just does not want to do it, does not care about their workers. And, um, you know, uh, that's got to change. And if it takes a lawsuit to make them change, we'll do that. But, yes, they've been uh, pulling the uh, the economic card on it. And it's costing them so much more to not deal with the issue. So that's really what the funny part about the whole thing is, is if they had implemented these protections 12 years, 15 years ago, like they should have uh, when they first got notice of this stuff, then we wouldn't be in the uh, spot we're in today. Can you uh, briefly touch on some of the physical um, manifestations of the exposures that the workers are having to deal with now? Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, when you breathe in toxic vapors like this, uh, you know, number one is there are hundreds and hundreds of chemicals um, that are known to be toxic. They mix together, you know, having unknown health effects when they mix together. Uh, people are suffering lung disease, um, you know, industrial asthma, uh, something called reactive air, airways dysfunction syndrome uh, or RADS. Um, you know, they have, they have problems breathing for the rest of their lives. Uh, you know, they, they can't go out into the community because something like a deodorant or a dry erase marker could cause them to go, in, uh, go into kind of a toxic shock. You know, so their lives change very dramatically. Uh, so that's one. Another is uh, some of these chemicals attack the nervous system, and people, uh, you know, get toxic encephalopathy, which can be fatal. Um, and there have been some some people who have died from that. Other people are still suffering the effects of it, which might include dementia. You know, uh, what's called neuropathies, where you lose control of part of your body, uh, including maybe your speech patterns and that kind of thing. Uh, so these have been documented, uh, diagnosed by doctors. People have gotten compensation through the worker comp system and other systems. Um, and yet Hanford continues to, you know, kind of maintain that the vapors are, are not dangerous and uh, that no one's been hurt. And, and they take this position in, in federal court recently, and the judge 
said, what, what are you talking about? The record is replete with examples of that. Uh, so I think we're finally on a track where, um, you know, I think we're going to get some remedies and some protections into the future because there's a lot of people going to be working around this waste for the next 40 years as, as they main, as they empty these tanks, uh, as they need to do, uh, and, you know, uh, process this waste in, in the waste treatment plant, hopefully, and vitrify it so that it's, it's no longer as much of a danger. Well, Talk about the waste treatment plant. They've been uh, working on that for um, decades now, and didn't the price tag just go up on it? Yeah. So uh, waste treatment plant is, uh, is a large facility next to the Tang Farms that they started, the latest iteration, they started building in 2000. And uh, Bechtel, uh, National, and uh, URS, which is now AECOM, <clears throat> we're partners in building this this large facility, and its purpose is to take tank waste um, and turn it into glass. Uh, and it's it's a good idea. It's been it's happened at other facilities around the world, but at Hanford, for some reason, they're having a, a lot of troubles making that a reality. So the facility was supposed to open in 2007. And then that changed to 2009 and then 2011. <clears throat> and, um, you know, uh, in 2010, some whistleblowers came forward, uh, top management engineers and scientists, and said this facility is, the design is dangerous, uh, the construction uh, is fraudulent, you haven't used the correct parts that have been nuclear certified, um, and, uh they were dismissed. They were fired. Uh, they were uh, laughed at. You know, they were ostracized in their own communities, and and unemployable um, after after they spoke out. And yet, you know, uh, because of a massive amount of attention that we helped bring to this, uh, and the national media and in Congress, we testified in Congress several times, et cetera. <clears throat> they were proven right. They were validated, and so that was. Uh, uh, in, in 2016, they're now um, having to redesign the facility. Uh, they've got, uh, you know, a fast track, so-called, to start um, uh, hopefully uh, vitrifying low-activity waste. The high-activity waste uh, portions are uh, more difficult and more of a challenge. That's a high-gamma-emitting waste. But uh, the fact is that, you know, some $19, $20 billion have been spent on this one facility, this, you know, this, this issue, uh, actually, of, of vitrifying waste, $19 billion, yet not one drop of high-level waste has been processed. Uh, and we're uh, years and years away from it. So the, the last date that we heard for opening this site was uh, 2036 for full operations of the waste treatment plant. Now they're hoping to get the low activity waste facility up and going sooner than that. But, you know, and they say 2022, but that date also slips and the GAO says you'll never make it. Um, so last week, the, uh, you know, right before Christmas, <laughs> uh, Hanford and the DOE had, had, you know, put out a paper saying, the cost of the facility was going to rise from $13.6 billion to $16.8 billion, a $4.5 billion increase. 
now the original projected cost was 4.3 billion. So it's gone up quite a bit. Uh, you know, uh, I don't believe the 16.8 billion, I think is probably double that uh, before we finally get to where uh, it needs to go. And, and frankly, I don't care. Whatever it takes to make this a safe and effective facility, uh, <clears throat> you know, we spent uh, uh, about $7 trillion to make nuclear weapons. Hanford was a big part of that. It was the factory that made that plutonium. And whatever it takes to protect current and future generations, we, we got to do that. So that's where we are. And, um, you know, uh, if we're not, if we're not, not going to make the same mistakes going forward, we do need a change in approach from the government and from the contractors to make sure that they don't make the same mistakes over and over again. But I'm afraid that's the track we're on right now is, is essentially a fraud uh, treadmill. And having said that, um, the uh, companies involved in, in this facility just paid $125 million to settle a fraud suit brought by whistleblowers on behalf of the government. And they paid this money to the government. Um, they did not admit guilt. Um, they say they didn't do anything wrong, but here's $125 million. Um, so, uh, you know, the allegations in that lawsuit were that they used the wrong parts, that they used uh, government money for lobbying Congress, uh, which is a big no-no, um, that the design was was fraudulent and they knew it and they went ahead anyway and they enriched themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Again, they didn't admit liability, but they did pay out the money. Um, so we'll see what, what happens next. They're still working at that site, right? So Bechtel and, and uh, AECOM still have the job. Wasn't one of the issues that was brought out by the whistleblowers was that the proposed design at that time would potentially uh, have hydrogen explosions within it and or, you know, major nuclear releases? Yes. Um, the, uh, the problem with the plan, I was so many problems, it would take me several hours to kind of detail them all. But um, the some of the big ones were, you know, if you've got these enclosed facilities and tanks. Uh, it's all in a, what's called a black cell, which uh, there's no doors or windows or lights in there. So all the processes are, are happening uh, in this very large room, the size of a football field in, as high, right? So it's, uh, um, you know, uh, lots of tanks and pipes and whatnot. They, the problem was once you remove the waste from the tanks, and pump it into these tanks, you add acid to dissolve that waste so you can start processing it, filtering it out. The mixing in these tanks was insufficient. So heavy particles of plutonium could fall to the floor of that tank. And uh, that causes, um, you know, uh, a risk of uh, what's called nuclear criticality when, you know, uh, plutonium amasses in sufficient quantity. It can go nuclear, basically. And uh, the other is that uh, the intense amount of, of alpha particle bombardment of, of water can actually break apart the water molecule, which, as we know from our high school science, is hydrogen and oxygen. So now you've got free hydrogen gas and oxygen floating around in the headspace of the tank. The tank was not designed to handle that. So there's no way to vent that hydrogen out of there 
Uh, and, you know, we, we reach a certain point of concentrations of hydrogen and you have oxygen in there, it will catch fire or it will explode. It just it is a given. Uh, it's very dangerous stuff. Think the Hindenburg, right? It doesn't take a whole lot to set it off. So the, the smart guys that they had hired to uh, oversee this facility and the design said, your mixing isn't going to make it, right? You're going to have this problem. And the response to that was to walk them out the door uh, and, and get rid of them. Um, Walt Tanasitis settled his wrongful discharge suit for $4.2 million, right? And also is he's one of the people that brought this, this other False Claims Act lawsuit uh, charging the, these companies with committing fraud. But, yeah, there were some very hefty safety issues putting the Northwest at risk. So we owe these people a great deal, a great debt of gratitude, in my opinion for bringing out these problems, even though they, they suffered with their career to bring it out. Any chance of, of those people going back to work on this facility to you know, keep an eye on what is uh, happening from here on out? That would be such a wonderful uh, development if you got a company in there that actually believed in hearing problems uh, and fixing them in a timely manner. What a message that would send to, to the workforce that we have a change now. We are, we're welcoming uh, people to raise questions. Uh, but it's not going to happen with this administration or the next administration. It's not going to happen with these companies. They've, they've declared themselves enemies of dissent, enemies of uh, people bringing forth uh, problems, and they will punish and retaliate against anybody who brings forth reports because it gets in the way of their profits. Uh, and they, they talk a good game and say, no, we're making progress. But actually, the studies don't support that. There's a high level of fear uh, at, at the facilities as, a, you know, very punitive companies that, that, run, these, that run these facilities. And, and people have, uh, have a great deal of, of, of a chilling effect of, of not willing to be, uh, you know, the person that brings out the problem because they saw what happened to Walt Tanasitis and Donna Bushy and Gary Brunson and some of the other folks out there is if, if you can get rid of your top managers like that, drawing in some pretty big salaries, <clears throat> how am I going to fare a pipe fitter, right? Or a mid-level manager. I don't have a chance, right? So people that want to keep their high paying jobs, they're going to keep their mouth shut. Doesn't uh, as a member of the tri-party agreement, uh, doesn't Washington State have any leverage for getting decent people in at these facilities for, if nothing else, uh, oversight um, uh, jobs? Yeah, um, yeah. The Department of Ecology does have oversight. Um, they ha they have some staff committed to the waste treatment plant, and in the end, that that plant has to be licensed by the state of Washington. They have to get a permit to operate. Um, under RICRA, uh, which is the Toxic Hazardous Waste Law. Um, so they, they can't regulate the radioactive part, but they can the chemical part. And really, it's a big chemical facility, uh, so uh, they're, they're in good, good shape. But they don't involve themselves in employee retaliation and et cetera. They're, uh, and they're not very transparent with us or anyone else about what's happening. Uh, so the, the whole... The whole scene out there is very insular. They consider themselves part of the team, uh, the Hanford team. Um, so, you know, you, you go to a public meeting, those guys all sit together and chat, right? They, they're neighbors. Their kids go to school 
uh, the same schools. Uh, they go to the same parties. And so, you know, and their, their staffs interchange a lot, right? So someone who works at Department of Ecology in the state of Washington suddenly is working at Bechtel or, or one of these other companies. And for many in the government, that's the retirement, you know, pathway is to go to work for one of these companies. But they're not going to get hired if they weren't nice to these companies. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's called regulatory capture. And uh, that, that's what's going on at Hanford. And it's a problem that needs to be tackled. All right. Well, you, you touched on it earlier. Obviously, we have a new administration coming in here uh, shortly. And um, what are you anticipating from some of the, um, the folks who are going to be in charge of both uh, Department of Energy and as well as uh, our Washington State reps? Well, you know, I've, uh, I've long said that the Department of Energy is, is the problem at the Hanford site. Um, contractors come and go in the results of, you know, dysfunction and mismanagement and uh, lack of oversight leading to, you know, fraudulent behaviors, et cetera, continue. Um, it, it's got a terrible record for environmental remediation at Hanford. Just awful. Uh, lots and lots of waste of money, <clears throat> et cetera. So uh, part of me hopes that there will be big changes at the Department of Energy. Uh, if Trump came in and abolished the whole department, it probably wouldn't break my heart. Um, uh, it would be an opportunity for something new. Uh, I don't think he's going to do that, though. Uh, I think, um, you know, mostly what the Department of Energy does is maintain our nuclear arsenal. And that's 80 percent of its budget. Um, you know, 70, 80 percent. Hanford is, is a part of that. Um, you know, Trump has announced Rick Perry, um, a guy who has a degree in animal husbandry, <laughs> was the governor of Texas, you know, couldn't even remember the name of the Department of Energy as, you know, the agency he wanted to abolish. What's he know about it? Well, he comes from a state, you know, that has a lot of oil. Um, so it's, uh, my guess is that they will cut the budgets for cleanup at Hanford, um, that they will, there will be less transparency, uh, that uh, a lot of tools that, that we rely upon, you know, for instance, the Hanford Advisory Board, et cetera, to get information may go away. So, you know, there's, you know, maybe, maybe something good will happen unexpectedly, but uh, pr pretty much I'm, I'm not very optimistic. All right. What about um, Dan Newhouse, uh, since he's going to be in charge of um, funding for cleanup? Well, uh, we'll see where he gets. Um, you know, uh, Dan Newhouse is is a moderate um, Republican. Uh, it, uh, you know, he was in the Gregoire administration um, and uh, obviously believes in the Hanford cleanup. I think, and uh, right, he's going to fight for it. Well, what kind of power or influence he's going to have with the Trump administration? I mean, look at the OMB director that they're uh, proposing to bring in as a big budget hawk, right? So he wants to cut, cut, cut. <clears throat> so uh, where will Washington State delegation get on this? I don't know, uh, but I, I hope that he's able to keep Hanford funding in place because we need the money. Uh, to be able to continue the cleanup, even though it's limping along. Uh, if you cut it far enough, then you are risking disasters, right? There are 
areas at, at the Hanford site that need caretaking. Uh, and if you don't caretake these highly dangerous inventories, then there's going to be a bad situation one day. Um, explosions, you know, releases of radiation, et cetera. So you've got to spend the money to keep the community safe. All right. Well, with that, we're just about out of time. We're talking with Tom Carpenter. He's executive director of the Hanford Challenge. How do people find out more about your work at the Hanford Challenge? Well, the easiest way is to go to our website, uh, which is our name, HanfordChallenge.org. And uh, on there, you can find the latest news and, um, you know, find out more about the lawsuits uh, and the progress that's been made, et cetera. And uh, all you listeners out there, uh, please donate to KE, you know, KEXP and Hanford Challenge. This is the time to do it. Uh, your donations are tax deductible. And uh, we need to work together as a community to solve these kind of problems. All right. Well, with that, we're unfortunately out of time. I want to thank you very much for coming and spending time with us again this morning. Okay. Thank you.